as we worship you, continuing to do so, but also to be with me as I speak on this topic of hell, that I say the words that you would have me to say and present it in the way that you would have it presented, and that we will accept what your word has to say, as difficult as it may be on some topics like this one, and that we may see that it is perfectly possible to reconcile a holy and loving God with the concept of hell. We thank you, God, so much for the people here this morning, for all those who have chosen you, and for those who may be outside of Christ, that they would choose you, and that we would all be uh, a part of your family that is seeking to live as you would have us to live, and to be with you for eternity. It's in your son's precious name we pray, amen. Purposely asked Kevin to lead more upbeat songs, because... I thought maybe the topic this morning would be less than upbeat, but maybe not. Because I think that uh, hell is absolutely necessary to talk about, and I think it's absolutely necessary to reconcile it with a holy God. Not only do I think the two are not in opposition to one another, the two actually go hand in hand. But if I were to ask you to describe in one word the inhabitants of hell, using only one descriptor, one word, what word would you use to define or describe the occupants of hell, the souls that are in hell? And maybe you'd choose a word like wicked. Maybe you'd choose a word like sinful. But I think one word stands out above all the others as a perfect description of hell and the people or the souls that will reside there. And it's this word. Would you agree? Hell will be a lot of things, but above all else, I believe hell will be a place of regret, deep regret. Regret for worshiping false gods, worshiping in false religions. Regret for apathy or procrastination. Regret for not looking at and closely examining and accepting the evidence for a holy God. Regret for not sharing the gospel. Regret for not obeying the gospel, of course. I think there are a lot of worthy descriptors for hell and the inhabitants of hell. But I think regret probably sums it up better than any other. The moment a person enters into eternity and into that portion of eternity that is called hell, they will regret it and they will have forever to do so. I want to welcome our visitors this morning. So glad that you've chosen to be with us. What an inspiring and uplifting way to start, right? Yeah, I hope that this morning you'll walk away from the lesson feeling like that you were uplifted, and that you were encouraged. You know, we are in a one-word series where our congregation has taken the one-word devotional book, and each week we're taking one word and studying that word for the week in a series of devotions, and then it's all culminating on Sunday morning as we talk about that word. And the word this week, of course, is hell. I'm preaching on hell this morning because I love you. Not just because it's part of the one word series. Not because I believe that we need more hellfire and brimstone sermons. 
I'm not preaching on hell because I enjoy it, because I don't necessarily. In fact, it's pretty depressing to work on this lesson throughout the week. I'm preaching on hell for one reason above all else. Because I love you. And I'm afraid that hell is an avoided topic all too often nowadays. It's sad, isn't it, that, that we avoid the topic of hell, that we don't like to talk much about it. It's a hot topic, but not because people are talking about it, rather because people are avoiding it, it seems, at all costs. Which is interesting because the same folks who avoid hell are typically the ones that want to emphasize the love and the grace and mercy of Jesus. But you don't love anyone if you're willing to avoid hell. You don't truly love someone, and you're not truly concerned about a person's spiritual welfare if you're willing to avoid hell at all costs. If you truly love someone, then you will teach the hard truths of the Bible. And hell is certainly one of those. Here's the gist of the message this morning. Don't live with regret. And don't die with it either. I am constantly encouraged by folks who are on their deathbed, who are about to pass from this life. They've been faithful Christians, not that they've never made a mistake, not that they've never messed up, they have, but they have prepared properly for what's next. And I am encouraged when I go and visit them and they are at peace and they are looking forward to being at home with the Heavenly Father. In another sense, I'm discouraged, and every so often I have the opportunity to speak with folks who are on their deathbed who have not prepared properly, and they're scared to death, and rightfully so. They're fearful of what comes next because they have not taken care of their soul throughout this life. And then, of course, some people die tragically in an accident, and they didn't prepare. They didn't have time to prepare. They had time, but they didn't put the focus on preparation like they should have beforehand. They banked on tomorrow, and tomorrow never came. Don't live with regret. And certainly don't live with regret in eternity. I've heard individuals say something like, well, I, I just can't believe that a loving God would send people to hell. Some people phrase it this way. They say, I refuse to believe in the doctrine of hell. You can't believe, or you refuse to believe? But what if it's true, right? What if it's true? Do they realize that Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 mentions at least eight people that are going to find themselves in hell? Notice, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So in other words, those who allow fear to incapacitate them and keep them from serving God will be in hell. Those folks who refuse to believe in God will be in hell. Those folks who refuse to remain faithful will be in hell. Those whose behavior is detestable will be in hell. Murderers will be there. The sexually immoral will be there. Those who practice sorcery and divination and godless uh, other spiritual practices will be in hell. Those who worship idols will spend eternity in hell, and the liars will be in hell. And you look at that and you say, well, of course, Chris, certainly the really bad people are going to be there. But look at that list again. Can you find yourself in that list? I mean, think about it. 
Are you sporadic in your faithfulness? Are you guilty of not putting God first in your life? Are you worshiping an idol? Like sports, entertainment, your job, something else? Are you a liar? You may say to yourself, well, at least I'm not a murderer. Are you sure? Because remember what John wrote? John talked about those who do not love their brother. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. At the end of the day, the people who will be in hell, the souls that will be in hell are those that have sinned. Right? The people that are in hell will be those who have sinned, which includes everybody, right? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone deserves to be in hell. Everybody. Whether it's the Jew, the Muslim, the Buddhist, everyone in all denominations, even members of the Lord's church deserve to be in hell. But we know that God has given us a beautiful gift, the gift of grace that comes through His Son, right? which should tell us that God doesn't want any of us to spend eternity in hell. He has given us an out, so to speak. And so therefore, if we take advantage of that, then all of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God can still have hope. Are you aware that the Word of God only records Jesus as ever using the word grace one time? One time. And yet he spoke about hell or mentioned hell 11 times. Spoke about hell more than anyone in the New Testament. So folks that want to avoid hell and only emphasize the grace of Jesus and the love of Jesus are missing a great point that is made in the Bible, and that is that Jesus only mentions grace one time. Didn't mention it in the Sermon on the Mount. Didn't mention it in his miracles or the Great Commission or the woes to the Pharisees. But he brings up hell 11 times. Does that mean we can accuse Jesus of being graceless in his preaching and teaching? Of course not. Why did he bring up hell over and over again? Because he doesn't want us to go there. He doesn't want anyone to end up there. There's no greater gift that I could give a person than to warn them of hell and to point them to Jesus. The cruelest thing I could ever do is avoid the topic of hell. And likewise, it's the cruelest thing you could ever do as well. Don't say you love someone and yet refuse to talk about hell. There is this thing in our judicial system, and some of our lawyers can help us with this, but I believe it's called mandatory sentencing. And if I have this, and if I understand this right, mandatory sentencing is where uh, you remove the judge's discretion. In other words, there are certain crimes that carry a mandatory sentence, and there's nothing the judge can do about it. So if he convicts the person of that crime, there is a mandatory sentence. They have to serve this certain amount of time. Am I close? David, am I close? Am I getting there? Okay. So you have this mandatory sentencing, and there was this young lady who was 31 who came from an impoverished home. She was raising five children, and she had a very, a very minor role in a, a certain crime, drug-related. Now, the judge knew that the mandatory sentence, if he convicted her, would be six years in prison. He felt that that was too steep. It was too harsh. 
He knew that taking this young lady from her family would not be a good thing, that she needed to receive some sort of punishment, but six years was just overkill. And so he did something ironic. He disobeyed the law in order to be just. And he convicted her of a lesser crime so that she got five years probation, paid a fine, but she didn't have to go to prison for, for that six years. Isn't it interesting that so often we look at the righteous judge who is God and we become outraged on this teaching of hell. Some would say that the eternal punishment of hell is far more unjust than the mandatory sentencing that would have been for that young lady had she been convicted. If an earthly judge can see that one size fits all sentencing just doesn't work and is unjust, then why can't God? Why an automatic, unappealable sentence to an eternity of torment? Why? Isn't that cosmic overkill? Many people have phrased it this way. How can a loving God torture people in hell? This is the go-to question for the atheists, the agnostics. Yet Christians struggle with this question as well. How do we reconcile a holy and loving God with the concept of hell? Some of you may have heard the name Charles Templeton. Templeton was a Canadian cartoonist and an editor and politician. He was kind of a jack-of-all-trades, but he was also an evangelist. And Charles Templeton, many years ago, preached with Billy Graham. He started the Avenue Road Church of the Nazarene. He was a highly respected preacher. But in 1957, he left it all, and he became an atheist because of this concept of hell, basically. The major reason why he started questioning God in his faith is because of the concept of hell. He couldn't reconcile a holy God with the torture and torment of hell. Here's what he said. I couldn't hold someone's hand to a fire for a moment, not in an instant. How could a loving God, just because you don't obey him and do what he wants, torture you forever, not allowing you to die, but continue in that pain for eternity? There is no criminal who would do this. What do you think? Do you have similar sentiments? Maybe you've never brought them up because you're afraid of what others might think of you, but maybe you're not an atheist or an agnostic, but maybe you've questioned this as well. Maybe you've had a similar discussion in your own mind or with someone. How do we reconcile a loving God and hell? Well, here's one thing that we need to understand. God does not torture people in hell. Let's just get that out of the way. Before we go any further, let's understand that God does not torture people in hell. And you say, well, Chris, but what about the licking flames and, and the worm that eats at the flesh and the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth? Understand that when we see hell presented in the Bible, we cannot get away from the fact that it is punishment, that it is eternal punishment. But the scriptures describe hell as a place of utter darkness. It also describes, it's also described as a place that has flames. So which is it, right? I mean, it can't be utter darkness if there's flames, right? But that should tell us that, that many of the descriptions of hell that we find in the Bible are metaphorical. Whether it's Jesus or one of the other New Testament writers, they are doing their best 
to create an image in our minds so that we can grasp the incomprehensible. Remember when Jesus spoke about hell, he pointed to this ravine or this garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, a place that was represented by heinousness because back in King Josiah's Reformation, there, there was this, this, these sacrifices to children to the, uh, of children to the God of Molech. And so this, this ravine, this garbage dump outside of Jerusalem had a very, very uh, disgusting and despicable past. Even in Jesus' time, there was a sewer system that, that left the temple and emptied into this garbage dump. And there you would find the blood and the fat of the sacrifices. There was human feces, and it was kept burning all day. It was a maggot-infested place. And it's scary to think that Jesus would point to that garbage dump and say, that's a good description of hell. Now, he didn't say that hell would be that, but he's just trying to put a picture into the minds of the people to define something or describe something that's really undefinable or indescribable. We cannot grasp the depth and the breadth of hell. Being set on fire for all eternity is not an appealing thought, to say the least. Weeping and gnashing of teeth sounds horrific. Worms eating at your flesh forever is not something that we want to think long and hard about. They may just be metaphors, but it's scary to think that the Bible would consider these metaphors as applicable, as a teaching on hell. And yet, they don't even scratch the surface. As we consider all this, it's tempting to point the finger at God and say, God, how, how could you do this? How could you allow this? How could you, how could you be so holy and loving and then torture people in hell? Some even turn their back on God because they can't stomach the thought of a loving God being so uh, uh, just uh, unloving and acting so egregiously. Folks, God's not to blame here. And that's the point we have to reach in our thinking. God's not the one to blame. Hell is our fault. It's not God's fault. When people founded this nation, when people first came to America, they didn't step off the boat and go, well, better start building prisons. When they founded this, this new world, when they came here, they didn't get off the boat and say, well, let's start by making prisons. I believe they would have much rather never have had to approach the idea or the need for prisons, but they became necessary. And the same is true for hell. Hell is a necessary place for those who choose to rebel against God and against the purpose for which they were created. Just as heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people, as we talked about last week, hell is a prepared place for a prepared people as well. Hell is reserved for those individuals who spend their lives in rebellion against God. Hell is the natural consequence for living life separated from God. You see, we often portray God is some spoiled child who gets angry and throws a temper tantrum because people don't obey his arbitrary rules. We often picture God as sitting up in heaven on a throne with this knob next to him, and every now and then he turns the knob to turn up the intensity on the heat in hell just so he can watch people suffer. We look at Jesus and his teachings on hell, and we assume that Jesus is doing this because he is looking forward to the day when his enemies will burn for all eternity, and he'll get a good laugh. The truth is, 
The Bible presents a holy God that is wrathful, but a holy God that would love nothing more than for everyone to be with him for all eternity. God wants a relationship with the people that he created in his image. He wants that more than anything. If you remember the words of Peter, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God doesn't want you to go to hell. He doesn't want you to go to hell. Why do you think Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven? It's because that he wants everyone to be there with their heavenly father. It's not because he got some sick satisfaction out of talking about hell and hoping that the Pharisees would end up there. God has posted this enormous stop sign on the road to hell. And that stop sign is not in the shape of an octagon. It's in the shape of a cross. And if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, the road to heaven is paved with the blood of Christ. And we only end up in hell because of our own choosing. Why would God send his only begotten son to die such a cruel death if he didn't care about us going to heaven? Why would he go to all that trouble if he really wanted to see us burn in hell? If his ultimate goal was to send as many people to hell as possible and to torture them for all eternity, why did he send his son? Because his ultimate goal was not that. His ultimate goal was that each and every person choose him. Yeah, as an earthly parent, if your child decides to, to leave home and to go live somewhere else and doesn't want anything to do with you, what can you do about that? I mean, if your child is of age, they're an adult, and they decide, you know what, I don't want anything else to do with you, with your religion, your teachings on Jesus or God. I don't want anything else to do with you. I'm leaving. Don't ever contact me again. Don't ever talk to me again. And they move to, say, Europe. What can you do as a parent? You might send them letters begging them to reconsider. You might show up on their doorstep begging them to come home. But at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot you can do. You can't bind them by hand and foot and drag them back home. That would be kidnapping. And that's not love, right? God loves us so much that he has given us the freedom to not love him back. God loves us so much that he has given us free will. And there are many people who will exercise that free will in a way that is disobedient. Every guy who's ever chased a girl knows that you can desire her, you can court her, you can, you can chase her and pursue her. But you can't make her love you. You might like to, but you can't. And God understands that not everyone will love him. And he's not going to force it because that's not love. If you have to force it, if you have to make someone love you, then it's not really love. God wants us to choose him. And in giving us the gift to choose him, he knows that some will not. Some will choose hell. And that's their choice. Hell is a choice. Hell is a natural consequence of those who have chosen to live life away from God. And that, my friends, is the essence of hell. It's not flames. It's not weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not the place where the worm never dies. It may be all of those things, but the essence of hell is exclusion. That's the worst part of hell. Is that we are separated from God for all eternity. 
You know, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 14, you have this king that's throwing a feast, this wedding feast. And he invites all of the chosen ones, which would be represented by Israel. And this king is God, of course. And he, he chooses Israel to come to the wedding feast and to get around the table. And they refuse. He, had, he offers a second invitation, and they refuse again. Some even beat up the messengers and kill the messengers. And so he opens it up to all others, which is an expression of the kingdom being open to the Gentiles as well, right? The Jews are welcome into the kingdom, but only if they accept Jesus Christ, if they believe, they repent, they confess Jesus, and are baptized for the remission of their sins. And so the kingdom is being open now to all. And there's one guest that shows up, and he's not dressed properly. And we get the idea that he knew better, he just didn't make the proper preparation. And the Bible says that the king tossed him out into the place where there is utter darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's a lot that we can dive into, into Matthew 22, starting in verse 1, going through verse 14. But the main thing I want you to notice is the exclusion, the being thrown out of God's presence into utter darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place that is away from God. Hell is a place where God cannot be found. It is the one place where the omnipresent God is not. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be anywhere that God is not. Hell is a place where there is no grace, where there is no mercy, where there is no love, where there is no hope. Only regret. Only despair for all eternity. Nothing good exists in hell. There's a gentleman who was on vacation visiting a friend in Australia. And they decided to go down to the beach, and the friend begins wading out into the water. He's going to go for a swim. And his buddy who lives in Australia says, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm going to go for a swim. And he said, uh, you better pay attention to the signs. And there was a sign kind of like this one. And the friend said, oh, don't be ridiculous. I mean, what are the chances I'm going to get eaten by a shark? And, and he started to wade on out into the water further. And his friend said, look, you, you've got to ask yourself a question. Are the signs there to warn me of impending danger? Or are the signs there just to ruin my fun? And I think it's a valid question for all of us when we look to the Bible, when we look at Scripture and we look at the Lord's teachings on hell, when we look at the New Testament writers and their teachings on hell, when we look at the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God and its teaching on hell, we should see it as a warning sign. These are all warning signs for us to help us understand that this is a place that we don't want to go. This is a path that we don't want to head down. The Bible's words on hell serve as a warning to all of us. The reason that God sent his son is because he wants us all to go to heaven. The reason that Jesus spoke so much about hell is because he wants us not to go there. The reason Jesus died on the cross is so that we wouldn't have to live apart from God for all eternity. Here's the thing that we cannot deny that I think that you should write down, that you should keep somewhere in your Bible that you can turn to and you can reference as much as possible because it's so important for us to grasp. And that is the only way to get to hell is by trampling over the cross of Christ. 
Write that down. Keep that in your Bible somewhere where you can constantly refer to it. The only way to get to hell is by trampling over the cross of Christ. There are warnings. There is a huge stop sign in the shape of a cross to keep you from going there. The only way you're going to get to hell is by ignoring that stop sign. The only way you're going to get to hell is by trampling over the cross of Christ. You want to go to heaven? You want to go to heaven? Then have faith that God is real. That he sent his son who is real. Who died on a cruel cross. Who was buried and the third day rose again. And is seated at the right hand of the Father. You want to go to heaven, then let that faith move you to repent, to change the way that you're currently living, and to live a life in Christ, to say no more living for sin, no more being a slave to these things in this world. I am rather going to make Christ my master. Want to go to heaven? Then confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And be immersed in the waters of baptism where you contact the blood of Christ and you're raised a new creature in Christ being faithful unto death. You want to go to hell? Don't do anything. Come as we stand and as we sing. All things are ready. Come to the feast. Come for the table now is spread. Ye famishing, ye weary, come. And thou shalt be richly fed.